So first, right. Okay. Uh, first of all, everybody, uh, nice to see you all. Um, and, um, you know, as we're going forward with these uh, classes, we will uh, have the opportunity, I will have the opportunity to understand what the best way to present the material to you is. Um, so, for example, today I will be sharing the screen um, more than I've done in the previous classes because people have expressed uh, the idea that it would be easier to follow if it, w if it was all on screen. So I will do that shortly. Um, let me just, you know, quickly take you to where we ended last week. Um, last week, we well, uh, just uh, again, to just give a little context, we have a textual problem in the Mishnah. Um, the textual problem is and we discuss the textual problem whatever solution we offer to that problem has two ramifications it has an interpretive uh, ramification how do we interpret the Mishnah and it has a halachic ramification and you have to keep those two things separate in your mind so that you understand the discussion that is taking place in the Talmud so we, we saw the approach of Rabbi Abhu we saw how he interprets that passage from an interpretive perspective. And we also looked at the halachic consequences um, of that. And the halachic consequences, and at this point, I'm going to do a, um, a screen share. And I have about 75 different screens open, so I have to find the correct one. I hope I actually got the correct one. I think this is it, minus this. Um, at this point, you should all be seeing a colorful... Um, one second. Um, a colorful map of the sugya. If somebody can just confirm. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah, I see the yeah. confirmation. Excellent. So, um, so basically, the Abhu's interpretive um, perspective was that the Mishnah excludes hodaot v'halvaot. Hodaot v'halvaot is not included in the purview of the Mishnah. So that's the interpretive part. And the halachic part is, well, uh, why, why would we exclude hodaot v'halvaot from the Mishnah? Um, and the answer was, mumchim, to teach us that with respect to hodaot v'halvaot, we do not require expert judges. Uh, this is akin to, um, you have in many countries uh, arbitration laws, and under arbitration, oftentimes you don't need to have a judge. You can have just, you know, um, people who are familiar with the business, right? People who are who have a particular expertise. It's not necessarily a legal expertise, right? So the point of Rabbi Abu is to teach us that in the case of Hoda'ot v'halva'ot, in the case of loans, um, admissions uh, that one owes money, one does not need to have an expert judge adjudicate um, the dispute, but rather the dispute could be adjudicated through non-expert judges. That was the legal conclusion of Rabbi Abhu. And where we left off was, um, well, there was a rhetorical part of that uh, legal conclusion, and then there is um, the source. So let's just start with the rhetoric, because I don't believe I explained it so well. Um, so I'm just going to look at the Maika Savar. Okay, again, I just want to make sure that I wrap this up properly, uh, and I'm going to read for you um, the highlighted section in the Gemara, Maika Savar. What is um, Rabbi Abhu's um, um, explanation 
of the relevant verses. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what that means. If it is Rabbi Abu's position that the different perashiot in the Torah, and I will soon uh, share the screen with you and show you what that is, um, if the different perashiot in the Torah need to be um, juxtaposed um, so that um, the rules from one perasha apply to the other perasha, leave in a memunchin. In that case, we should require then in the case of Halvaot, there will be expert judges. The Ikatsavar and Perashiot Katukanet, on the other hand, the Biyavu's position is that the Perashiot in the Torah are separate, Shaloshalamani, then why do you require three judges? So let me just show that to you in the, in the, um, let me just show it to you in the Pesukim. I don't think it was on the resource sheet, but nevertheless, I will, um, I will share with the verses with you now. Um, right now, do you see a different screen? Good, perfect. So that also worked. Okay. Um, so here it is. Um, so you have here the pesukim. You see um, the different pesukim that deal with the shomer and what happens uh, if the bailment was uh, robbed, for example, right? So you see here in this uh, in these pesukim, you see the word Elohim three times, right? So the first time is That's number one, right? Okay, and he's going to testify before the judge um, that he has, um, in fact, fulfilled his obligations um, as a Bailey. Um, he has certain obligations in Jewish law. He is going to testify before the judge. He's actually going to make a Shavuot HaShomerim. There's a special Shavuot for the Bailey. Um, where he has, where he states, I have fulfilled my obligations. Okay? And then it says, Ad Elohim There's a general statement that says that in all such cases, in any cases where there's a bailment of this nature, um, they, the uh, dispute would be resolved again, the word Elohim. And finally, Asher Yarshirun Elohim. So there's three times. So in the case of this parasha, and you see that this is one parasha, you see the summit here, this is the end of the previous parasha, so here we have this parasha, this is all one parasha. And in this parasha, we have the concept of three judges, and we have the concept of expert judges, because the word Elohim, um, and, and perhaps I should um, explain this, um, you know, um, in the in the verse in Bereshit, um, Perashat Bereshit, the Nachash is trying to seduce uh, Chava, and he says, So Elohim means a person with authority. You know, not just a regular person, but a person who has authority, a politician, a political leader, right? So the Nachash is trying to seduce Chava and saying, you will have this authority, you will be prominent. So the word Elohim doesn't just mean a person who has, um, who is a judge, but it is a, a judge who has the authority to act as a judge, right? So that's why. So it appears three times. So you notice there's two separate lessons here. The two separate lessons are, number one, you need to adjudicate this particular dispute, uh, in the case of a bailment, with three judges, a tribunal. And number two, the judges must be expert judges. In other words, Elohim implies a certain level of expertise. Okay, so those laws are learned in this parasha. If you go now further down, we have more Pesukim dealing again with the bailment, the different type of bailment, right? And then you have a few other laws, but finally, 
Come with me to Pasuk Kaf Dalet. Im Kesef et Ami. There you have Halvaot, black on white, lending money to a person who requires money. And the theory, the rhetorical theory here is that there is a juxtaposition between these various Pesukim because there are certain rules that we learn from the laws of bailment going all the way down, all the way down to the laws of Halva'ot, right? And what is the laws that we learn from the laws of the bailment? Well, we said that you require three judges because Rabbi Abu acknowledged that you require three judges. Right, um, and, and and the question is a very simple one. Well, if you require uh, three judges, then you should also require expert um, uh, expert judges, right? Because there are there is Ayrut Perashiot or there is not Ayrut Perashiot. So that that was a question that we got to last week. I just want to make sure that it was clear what's happening here. It's a purely rhetorical um, um, discussion, and I don't mean to minimize rhetoric, um, but rhetoric is important in rabbinic thinking. And how you express ideas is important in rabbinic thinking. So there has to be a correlation between the law and the pesukim, and it can't be a sloppy correlation, right? So saying expert judges, uh, no, three judges, yes, would be very sloppy, actually. So we're finally uh, getting to the point. The high the mishum. I'm sorry. Therefore, really, according to the verses, from a purely rhetorical point of view, from, a, uh, from the perspective of the verses and interpreting the verses, you would require mumkim, right? You would require expert judges. The same way you require three judges, you require expert judges. And the reason we don't require mumkim is because of Rubikana. Okay, let me ask. Does anybody, um, and, and then it says, um, the, uh, and I'm, now we're going to have a part C of this first section, which deals with Rabbi Abu, right? This is Roman numeral one, part one, Rabbi Abu's approach to the textual problem. The last, let's say, remaining unknown, we understand how Rabbi Abu interprets the Mishnah, we understand the halakhic consequences of that interpretation, we understand the rhetorical connection between the halakha and the Pesukim, so all that's done. The final question, what's the real reason? Okay, what's the real reason that Rabbi Abhu decides that you don't need expert judges? There must be a reason for that, right? It's not the Pesukim, obviously, right? That was just rhetoric. There's no reason in the Mishnah to require the interpretation of Rabbi Abhu. So what, you know, what is it, a, you know, what is it about a hoda'ot v'halva'ot that says, well, you know, yeah, we, we should require, normally we should require uh, expert judges, but in this case we won't require. And the answer is mishum de What do the words mishum de mean? What does it mean mishum it should have been, you know, if you're saying that it's, you know, that, well, normally you would say, Mishum de Chanina, I'm not sure if anybody has Safaria. Does anybody have Safaria? Can somebody read to me what Safaria says? I'm just curious if you have that, if anybody has it. I'll take a sip of my water in the meantime. I can open it also myself. Um, just, again, I'm just doing this out of curiosity. Let's see if I can, uh, somebody finds it before me. You're welcome to chime in. I'm opening it up. 
משום דלבי חנינה, let's say, we are in that amount that, we'll open up the English, here we go, language, okay, so now let's see what משום דלבי חנינה. אוקיי, ואחד דעה שנאמר, משפט אחד להילחם, לא. I think it says due to the reasoning. Ah, due to the reasoning of Rabbi Hanina. I like that. I, I like that interpretation. I like when he says due to the reasoning of Rabbi Hanina. Um, and I will take you at your word. Um, right, right. It's due to the reasoning of Rabbi Hanina. Okay. As Rabbi Hanina says. All right. Now, let's actually look at the words of Rabbi Hanina. Okay. So what's Rabbi Hanina going to be talking about? Rabbi Hanan is going to be talking about expert witnesses. Okay, let's, let's read it. Here it is. Okay, so this is part C, right? This is part here where we have part Roman numeral one. This is the last of three parts of Rabbi Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah. What's the reason that we have this concept of Mumkin doesn't apply for the Odvazov? That's where we're at now. And the answer is Rabbi Hanina. So let's read it. The Amar Rabbi Hanina. דבר תורה אחד דיני ממונות ואחד דיני נפשות בדרישה ובחקירה. רבי חנינה says that from the perspective of biblical law, all cases, it doesn't matter whether it's cases involving דיני ממונות, whether it's cases involving דיני נפשות, you have to have the proper interrogation of the witnesses. And last week we read in Harambam what that interrogation, um, uh, how that interrogation begins with seven questions. Okay, I, we read that last week. So all cases have to have it. So that's a very clear rule of Rabbi Hanina. All right. And what's the reason for that rule? Okay, so part, you know, subpart two. The policy consideration behind the Bichanina's allowance of the use of non-expert witnesses. So, example, the Bichanina says that from the perspective of, of, of biblical law, you need um, you need to have expert witnesses. But there is a policy consideration where he says, no, we will not use expert witnesses. I'm going to read to you the Gersa as it appears in the Vilma Shas. You notice I skipped that big bet. That big bet I put there based on the manuscript. I'm skipping it for now. What's the reason that in the case of Dinema Manot you don't need to have interrogation? Because we do not want to impede the ability of people who need to borrow money from borrowing money. We don't want to lock the door on those people. Okay, a couple of questions. The, the Gemara is faulty. The Gemara says, Why do we say that doesn't require That's just incorrect. It's not correct to say for example, in the case of Shomerim, in the case of Shor Shenagdahi Tapara, in all these cases, you required um, So the way the Gemara is phrased currently is highly problematic. Okay, so let's start with that. So the correct side is Umatam Amru Bedine Mamonot. Bedine Mamonot means 
there are some cases in Dinem Mamonot where you don't need to have Derisha Bachakira. Not all cases. You can't make a general statement. It's actually, it's actually a very specific situation. And the specific situation is Hodaot Bahalvaot. Okay, very good. So now we understand what the Bichanina said. He said, again, biblical law, you require um, um, uh, but as a matter of rabbinic policy, they excluded they excluded some cases of from the requirement of of, of um, in this because we don't want to prevent people, people who need money, from borrowing money. Okay, what's the problem with this entire section C? Okay, well, let me ask the question in another way. We just said that the reason we do not require expert witnesses is because of Rabbi Hanina. Does Rabbi Hanina say a word about expert witnesses? I mean, look at it for yourself. I'll give you a moment. Please find me the word mumchim. And, and I will be happy to, uh, you know, I will be happy to stand corrected. But the word mumkin doesn't appear there, actually. Okay. So what does it mean that oh, because of Rabbi Hanina, and that's why, why the case, that's why it's so important. It says, Mishum de Rabbi Hanina. It doesn't say, De'amar Rabbi Hanina. Usually in the Gemara, when you want to support yourself, in this case, uh, this Rabbi Hanina is a Tanna. He was um, a Talmud of, um, or rather he was a colleague of, uh, or a senior Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. So it would say De'ama Rabbi Hanina, as Rabbi Hanina stated. It doesn't say De'ama Rabbi Hanina. Why doesn't it say De'ama Rabbi Hanina here? It says Mishum De Rabbi Hanina. What's the difference between Mishum De Rabbi Hanina and De'ama Rabbi Hanina? And, and, it's, and it's, it's very important because without that, you simply can't understand the text of the Talmud. The Bichanina says nothing about um, expert witnesses, uh, expert, um, um, sorry, uh, judges. He doesn't say a word about that. Uh, Rabbi Hanina establishes that the correlation between Dine Mamanov and Dine Nefashot is only partial. Correct. He establishes that. And he also establishes that there's a particular policy concern. The policy concern is we want people lending money to poor individuals who need money. Because that's Misvata said the Oraita. Misvata said the Oraita that if a poor person requires, you know, a loan, we, we are obligated to help that person and give him the loan. So Rabbi Khanina doesn't say a word about Mumkim. Rabbi Khanina points out to a problem, and Rabbi Khanina addresses the problem in a certain way. How does he address the problem? By saying, well, normally in all um, cases of Dinei Nefashot and Dinei Mamonot, you have Derisha Bachakira. In order to make life easier for the person lending the money to the, to the poor, because the person lending the money doesn't want to, you know, later on find out that the, A, the poor person might not pay him back, and B, he's going to come before the court and they're going to start asking him questions. You know, what, uh, what year was it? What month was it? What week was it? What year of the Shemitah was it? Uh, where were you? And, you know, no, nobody wants to be interrogated by judges, especially not, under, you know, the judges, the, the Dayanim back then were very scary. Um, and frankly, they were, they were very scary. Nobody wants to be in front of these Dayanim being asked all these questions. So Rabbi Khanina says, you know, I want to make life easy. I want to persuade the potential lenders 
that they're not going to be subjected to this type of scrutiny. And therefore, although as a matter of biblical law, there is the requirement of in all cases, including in this case, I'm going to, I'm going to suspend that. We'll suspend it. There's no derisha v'chakina in the case of loans. And like this, the person lending the money knows that he's going to be able to recoup the money, doesn't have to stand in front of the judges and, and be terrified. Um, so when it says mishum derubi chakina means Rabbi Abhu is alluding to the same concern that Rabbi Chanina is alluding to. It's not a question of reasoning, by the way. Reasoning, you know, it's, it's not a question of reasoning. It's a, it's a particular policy concern. And he's thinking, and now you remember that I said Rabbi Abu was a high-level government official in the Jewish people. He was a representative of the Jewish people to the Romans. He was very involved in commerce and business. And he knew. He knew what was happening. In that position, he was fully, he wasn't, you know, um, a person who was, you know, in the yeshiva and had no idea of what's happening outside in the world. He was a person who was constantly visiting the Romans and, um, and negotiating deals with them and very... Um, in, involved in commerce and business, and therefore he understood the concerns of the upper class who had money to lend to the poor. And he tells us this Mishnah is actually predicated based upon the fact that Rabenu Hakadosh, who of course Rabbi Abu is not the one who um, authored the Mishnah. Rabbi Abu is one of the, uh, you know, star Talmidim, but he didn't order the Mishnah, you all understand that, right? So Rabbi Abu is saying, it's clear to me that the Rabbeinu HaKadosh, in, um, in formulating the Mishnah as he did, meant to make life easier for the lenders, meant to induce or facilitate loans from people who have money to people who don't have money. And how did he do this? By excluding the requirement, not of the Rishab HaKira, Rabbi Hanina did that, by excluding the requirement of expert judges. Again, you're now going, you know, before a judge, and there's no derishada hakira. If he's a colleague, if he's a businessman, you feel more comfortable. If he's a, you know, a huge dayan, you're you're a little, you know, you're a little scared. You're a little scared of the dayan, and and you again, you don't want to be subjected to that. You just as soon not make the loan. You don't need to make the loan. It's not doing you any. I mean, it's misfat said When I say it's not doing you any good, I mean from a olam uh, hazeh perspective, you don't feel it's doing you any good. You know, we have a um, um, an expression in our Syrian Arabic, wajaraz. Wajaraz means there's certain problems in life we just don't need. So you know, they don't, they don't want the wajaraz of having to go to court and getting the poor person to pay back the loan that he made him. So I just assume now make the loan if I have to go down before Dayanim. So Mishum Derebi Chanina is the key term. Umatam Amru Again, without the bet, you just, the, the, the sentence doesn't make sense. Okay? All right. And then finally, part three of elucidation, elucidating the Bichaninah's position, which is the basis for, or analogous to what Rabbi Abu did, is um, should we then say, if this is the case, that in fact we use um, non-expert witnesses in the case of loans, disputes involving loans, perhaps if the judges make a mistake in the ruling, they shouldn't have to pay, right? Um, and the answer, because because they're non-expert judges, let me just read to you the resource. I'm going to open up now the resource sheet. Give me a moment, please. Um, I remember.
number opening and here it is. Let's see. Resource sheet. Source sheet. Okay. So you should now all be able to see the source sheet. And um, this particular rule, it defines what the meaning of the word Elohim is, right? I, I didn't look at it before, but I remember I did discuss, discuss with, you, with you all that Elohim is a, is a judge who has a particular authority or who has semichas. So you may want to look at that after the class. Um, that's why I put it there. And also semichale dorot. Okay, that's again who the Elohim are. Um, you see, here it's explicit. En karui Elohim because they're the ones who have the real authority. They have the they have authority well beyond the authority of regular Dayanim, who are not uh, Elohim. All right, and here is the um, here is the halacha I want to read to you now. This is also in the Chosan Edrim, and it is as follows: A person is not a person who knows the law, and therefore he is not worthy of being a judge. Um, there's um there's a Yerushalmi in um in Bikurim um where uh, they discuss people who were appointed as judges even though they were not worthy of being appointed as judges. So the Yerushalmi says there um so because the judges used to wear talitot. And it says, if you have a person who's not worthy of being a judge, and he's appointed as a judge nevertheless, and he's wearing this talet, symbolizing that he's a judge, so it says, uh, This is, I think, in Perek uh, Gimel of Bikurim and Yerushalmi, where it goes into Dayanim She'enam Agunim. So, going back to this law, if the Resh Kaluta, for example, gives him the permission to uh, be a judge, he is, he, he, is, he is not a worthy judge. The fact that he was appointed, this is such an important law, by the way. The fact that he was appointed as a judge doesn't end it. You know, you know we, we want leaders who are competent. You know, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, well, well, there's, there's many governments um, where they appoint people based on, oh, you, you supported me, she supported me, you supported him, and he supported me. You know, in, in Judaism, that is not the proper... Uh, um, measure through which to appoint people to political positions. And if a person is incompetent, then, you know, he may have been appointed, but he's not recognized as actually having authority to do anything within the context of that position. This is an amazing law, by the way. I would, I would take this, frame it, and put it in all our offices, and perhaps we would have better political uh, leaders, um, because it really is an incredible law. I mean, imagine, imagine we follow this today. You know, um, you, you have to be competent. You actually have to deserve the position you're in. Okay, but going on, I didn't bring it to preach. I did bring it because of the following law. And it's as follows. Right? So if a person, um, if a person made a mistake and he, you know, he was a judge and he made a mistake. And now, for example, he caused somebody to pay money, right? So the answer is, if he himself, if the person himself was not worthy, was not worthy of being the judge, right? He has to, um, he has to pay. He has to pay. Why were you, it's kind of a penalty. Why, why did you allow yourself to be a judge? You, you weren't, 
qualified to be a judge. And you'll you'll read these halachot later. I don't I don't I don't find it necessary to go through the halachot with you. You can all look at these halachot yourselves. But the point being that the Gemara is asking a very intelligent question. Well, if you're telling me that these non-qualified people will now be judges in the case of um, um, halvaot, disputes involving um, loans, why should we penalize them? If they make a mistake, they shouldn't be penalized. That's the question that the Gemara is asking. And let's go now back to the Gemara. And we'll read it. And now you understand. Since these non-qualified or non-expert judges, let's call them, are being appointed, notwithstanding the fact that they're non-expert as a matter of policy, then perhaps they shouldn't be penalized. And the answer is no, because that would that would run counter to the very policy that allowed us to appoint them. Because if the if the people, the creditors, the lenders know that the judges are not just non-expert judges, but the judges can be sloppy judges. Now the guys say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lend money. Would I need a sloppy person now deciding that the debtor, my debtor doesn't have to pay me back? Well, no, I'm not going to lend money. But if you say, wait, wait, hold on. It's true. They're non-expert judges, but if they make a mistake, right? If they make a mistake, you can sue the judge now. Oh, I feel much better about that. Okay. So that's that policy. So that's this. So this is, this is the end of Roman numeral one. This is the end of the Biyahu. We see a very clear explanation of the Mishnah. We see a very clear halachic derivative from that explanation. We see a very clear policy. The policy is the policy of the Bichanina. We want to make sure that lenders lend money to poor people. But Biyahu was following up on that policy. It makes sense because Rabbi Hanina was a senior Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. And of course, if Rabbi Hanina is expressing this, we can understand how Rabbeinu HaKadosh in formulating the Mishnah was concerned with the same issue that Rabbi Hanina was concerned with. So that's, that's the end. This is, we just did an entire class in Caesarea. The first part of the, of the Sugya. That's the class that took place in Caesarea, and everybody was happy. They all understand the Sugya, they all understand the Mishnah, and they go on to the next subject. But as you know, the Talmud is a collection of classes from different uh, yeshivot, and now we're going to look at a different approach. We're going to look at the approach of yeshivat Fombedita. It's normally pronounced Humbedita. My father used to pronounce it Fombedita. Um, at the mouth, literally, it's uh, Fombedita, it means at the mouth of the river because that's where it was, of the yeshiva. And uh, we're now going to do that. So um, let's go to part two. Let's go to part two. And, uh, okay. Part two is going to be the approach taken in yeshiva from Medita. And it has three subparts, right? The first subpart is A, the Academy of Mechaza rejects Rubiahu for textual consideration. That's part one. Or part B. Um, I'm sorry, part A. Part B is the interpretation of the Mishnah. So Rabbi is going to offer, so he's going to reject it. The Yeshiva is going to reject the Biyavon. It's going to say why. Then Rabbi will offer a different interpretation to the Mishnah. And we're going to see what the compelling force is for Shemuel's interpretation of the Mishnah. So let's read. First, I'm going to read to you the Vilna Shas, 
which is this crossed out line. I will point out what the um, difficulties are in understanding the Vimashas. And um, then I will read to you what the Kitbeyat said, because I say the Kitbeyat, I believe that the um, um, a the Kitbeyat um, is a superior Gibsah. So first let's read again the Vimashas. That's what the Vilna Shas says. And let me just, one, one second, make sure I didn't forget anything. So just, I apologize. Um, okay. Right. All right, here we go. So again, if we are going to accept the um, explanation or the interpretation of Rabbi Avhu, then the Mishnah actually um, uh, has two separate uh, clauses. It should, it should read, right? of course, referring to because according to the Biyavu, it's Hodaot um, um, and Gezelot Bahavalot is with three Mumchim. And furthermore, why do I need to repeat the word three, three? So again, it says, Dinema Monot Bishlosha, that's one time. Gezelot Bahavalot Bishlosha, that's two times. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't want to be unfair to the Girsal, the Vilma Shas, but frankly, I, I have a, I'm having a hard time trying to explain it properly. And it's not because I'm prejudiced or I'm trying to, you know, support the Kitzbeyad. I'm just going to read it again with you. And if anybody thinks they can explain it better than I can, please do. I don't mean that as a challenge or as, you know, you know, I, 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 I sincerely am trying to understand this Kitzbeyad. So, if we are to accept the interpretation of the Biyavu, the Mishnah actually has two separate things. Should be adjudicated in Shlosha Hediotot. So when it says Dinema Monot Bishlosha, it means Bishlosha Hediotot. Right. So I, I, I think what it means to say is that it should have added the words Hediotot or Mumchin. Why repeat the word Shalosha But I don't understand the second question. The reason you need to repeat the word Shalosha twice. Is because in one case it's hediotot um, and in the other case it's mumchim. So again, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll just anybody want to try to explain this better than I did? I mean, don't be embarrassed. So honestly, again, I'm, and, and again, maybe there is a better explanation of the of the Vilma Shas. I'm sure there is. I just don't understand it intuitively. Okay, so I'll take that as let's look at the kitvayad. If the Mishnah. Because you remember how Rabbi Yahu interpreted the Mishnah. He didn't interpret Tarfei Katane. Rabbi Yahu says, That is Gezelot Bahavalot. You remember we uh, said that, I think it was uh, two weeks ago? Right. So Rabbi Yahu is saying, When I say, I'm referring specifically to Gezelot Bahavalot. Right? So now let's look at the Yitzhah, the Gitliyah. They're really just, it's, it's, it's almost sweet and enjoyable to read after uh, reading the Yitzhah before us. 
if or to accept the Biyavu's interpretation that the Mishnah is actually referring to one case, it's referring to one case, right? <laughs> Why do I have to say case one, case two? I should have said case two. Then I can say is explaining that is but the minute you say that suggests that it's two separate cases. So it's really difficult to explain the Mishnah according to the um, explanation of um, of Rabbi Abu. It really is. Meaning, Rabbi Abu's explanation from an textual perspective, the issue here is purely textual. It's not a question of halacha. Remember I told you at the beginning of this class to keep those two issues separate? Put the halachic issue on the side for now. The first issue, the, the, the issue, the, the problem with Mechuzah is if you're going to interpret the Mishnah, you know, the interpretation of the Mishnah has to be a reasonable interpretation that one can read the Mishnah and actually understand the words. So um, so I'm going to just check for a moment. All right. So, so therefore, the Academy of Mehozah formally rejects Rabbi Abhu's interpretation of the Mishnah. That's it. That interpretation is rejected. Part B. Now, and the following interpretation, and just so you understand, uh, this is a summary of the discussion that took place in the yeshiva. So there was uh, probably some back and forth. There was probably, um, you know, some more um, uh, um, elaborate uh, dialogue taking place. This is a summary. And I want to read to you the summary. Um, I'm going to first read to you what the Vilma Shas says. Amarava Tarte Katane. Lava says, actually, the Mishnah is saying two things. Okay. Um, that's quite a conclusion. I mean, I, I, I think we agree with Ravah. The Mishnah is saying two things. Uh, meaning, what, what, Ravah, when, what the Vilna Shas means to say is, the Mishnah is actually saying, that's another case, it's fine. It's a little difficult. I mean, you know, it's just a naked statement. You know, I mean, Rabbi Abu gave us this whole elaborate discussion. You know, you can't just ignore Rabbi Abu. You know, Amar Katane is really, it's, it's just problematic. I mean, you know, Rabbi Abu is senior to everybody here. You know, Rabbi Abu is, is, is a generation or two earlier. And you can't just, you know, say, oh, no, Amar Katane. So then, then the dialogue becomes kind of like, no, I say one, I say the Mishnah is Hadak Katane. And 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 Rabbi says Tartekatane and Rabbi Abu's no and it just becomes a fight and you know incoherent. It, it, from my perspective, the um, again the Gibsad for me is a problematic Gibsad because it just it doesn't you know just to state a naked position doesn't persuade anyone. Now let's read to you the Gibsad according to the Geonim because it really makes a lot of sense. Amarava hachika amar shemuel. Okay, there we go. Achika Amar Shemuel. Shemuel was a, a very junior Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. 
He was the founder of Yeshivat Nehar De'ah. He was senior to Rabah. Um, he was, I think, he was also senior to the Biyahu. He was. Um, and Hafi Ka'amar Shemuel Tartekatene. Okay, that's something we can understand. Shemuel, who was the Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, he interpreted the Mishnah differently. He interpreted the Mishnah Tarte. Namely, Dinei Mamonot refers to case one, and it says Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha, case two, Gezerot Bachavalot Bishlosha. Right? And continuing in the Girsa as the Geonim had it, Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha Hediotov. The first case in the Mishnah, Dinei Mamonot Bishlosha. That means Shelosha Hediotov. Three non-expert judges. Umaininhu, and what is included in the purview of that term, Dine Mamonot? the case of loans and admissions. Second clause in the Mishnah, The second clause in the Mishnah is dealing with and there you need three expert judges. Umaninhu, and what do we mean by experts? Because until now, nobody, <laughs> nobody bothered to tell us what an expert judge is. Semuchim. The answer is Semuchim. And you remember that we looked at the resource in Harambam. Harambam uh, in, in Chotzanedim, we looked at the resource uh, a few minutes ago, where Harambam says that Semuchim Be'eret Sisel are the ones who have the authority. These are the Elohim. Okay, this is it. So we know that the Girsav Harambam somehow corresponds with, um, with what we have before us, of course, with the Geonim. So first of all, first of all, I want to explain to you this part B, the interpretation of the Mishnah Kuntarabah. But you see how it's sometimes essential to be aware of what the Kitbeah say. And, you know, you have to understand that the Vilma Shas is, is, is a product of, you know, um, people um, uh, who um, uh, put together uh, the, the Talmud Bavli as, as perhaps as best as they could, perhaps, or, you know, based on the Kitbiyan, I think of the Venice Shas, and, you know, there was many, many years and many generations transpired between what the Vilna Shas that we have today and the Kitbiyan of the Geonim, right? So that's why it really is so important to look at the Kitbiyan of the Geonim, because oftentimes you, you, you see things that resolve um, a lot of problems. So I want to explain this to you. What does it mean, Achi Ka'amar Shemuel? What does that even mean? Achi Ka'amar Shemuel. What does that mean? Just, just bring me the statement of Shemuel. Why doesn't it say, Amar Aba, Amar Shemuel, Tarte Katane? Okay, that's number one. That's a good question. That's an important question. If you don't understand that question, then you don't understand the Yeah. I have another question to ask. If Shemuel says Tarte Katane, how can it be that a Biyabhu, you know, is, is, is you know, saying Hadak Katane? The Mishnah is actually bringing one case, meaning Dinei Mamonot B'Shlosha, Gezerot B'Chavalot B'Shlosha, Gezerot B'Chavalot is what's meant by Dinei Mamonot. How, how can you say that? It, it's, a, it's a little problematic. I mean, a Biyabhu is a Tamid of Rabbi Yochanan, I get it, but it was, it was a little after Shemuel, so they should have been aware of this interpretation of the Mishnah. Perhaps they weren't, but it is a little problematic, you must admit. Especially given the fact that Shemuel was a Rosh Hashanah and he was a Talmud, a junior Talmud of uh, 
of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. He was there when they uh, edited the Mishnah. So, uh, so that's very important. Again, when you, when, you, when you study the Gemara, you need to be aware of the technical terminology. Um, if it would have said, Amar Shemuel, and, you know, whatever the statement is, <laughs> that really would be a big problem for the Biyahu, and the Biyahu would really, it would be almost, I don't want to say shameful, but it would be, whoops, it would be a whoops moment. It doesn't say Amar Shemuel or Amar Ava Amar Shemuel. It says Achika Amar. Achika Amar, my father, Allah Vashalom, taught me. The word Achika Amar is a very technical term in the Gemara, which means I'm going to summarize to you Shemuel's position on the matter, which I gleaned from a class that Shemuel gave. Achika Amar Shemuel doesn't mean he said this explicitly, but I gleaned this conclusion from what Shemuel discussed, right? There is no explicit formulation on the part of Shemuel. And that's so important. And this is why um, um, the Tarte um, Katane wasn't so obvious. It's not a whoops moment for the Biyahu that he didn't know what the Shemuel said. So, Hachika Amar Shemuel, Tarte Katane. Namely, Dinema Morot Bishlosha Idiotot and Gezelot Bachabalot Okay, let me ask a question, if I may, and it is as follows. So Shemuel, you know, he interprets the Mishnah, and I think the, the interpretation of Shemuel is, is far more eloquent than the interpretation of Rabbi Abu. So just to go back to the original problem, I'm scrolling up. The original problem was... Doesn't the term, the second clause in the Mishnah, include Dinei Mamonot? Or rather, isn't it included within Dinei Mamonot? And the answer of Shemuel is very simple. No, it's two separate cases. Dinei Mamonot, which is Hodaot Valvaot, Bishlosha Hedyotot. Gezelot Vachavalot, Bishlosha Mumchim. So that's the answer. So that's how... That's how to be Abu interprets the Mishnah. So I have a question. I'm, uh, excuse me, I, I misspoke. That's how Shemuel interprets the Mishnah. My apologies. That's how Shemuel interprets the Mishnah. And Ravah's great contribution to us is that Ravah brings to us the Hachika Amar of Shemuel. Okay? So let me ask a question. If this indeed is um, the interpretation of the Mishnah, what is it the Mishnah? You know, again, I'm just going to pretend like I'm Rabbeinu HaKadosh. And the Mishnah said, you know, um, and I'm thinking, how do I formulate the Mishnah? So let me see. So, Dinema Monot Bishlosha, I would say, Dinema Monot Bishlosha Hediotot, Gezelot Bachavalot Bishlosha Mumchim. Wouldn't that make sense to say, to, to throw in those two words? Right? I mean, if that's the interpretation of the Mishnah, just say so. Dinema Monot Bishlosha Hediotot. That's how Shemuel is, you know, he's telling us this is what it means, and and I agree with him, but, you know, just again, why wouldn't Rabbi Hakadosh just say so? So if you don't mind, let's open up Golden Doves, uh, page 91 to 92, and I will open it on the screen for all of you as well. I believe it's in the res- in the source sheet somewhere. Yeah, this page ninety one. Yeah, so I'm just going to read to you uh, again. Uh, 
This is page 91 of Golden Doves. Economy affects the vocabulary of halakha to the point of imprecision. So when the laws, when the halakhot and the Mishnah were formulated by the Ben Kadosh, his number one consideration was economy, to use as few words as possible. In order to facilitate memorization, the variation of vocabulary is minimized. Key to understanding our sugya. Um, in order to help people study the Mishnah of the Alpeh, because if you wanted to be a member of the yeshiva, you had to know the Mishnah of the Alpeh and other things of the Alpeh. So in order to facilitate memorization, and Abel Wakadosh, this is, was his goal, for the Mishnah was to be studied by heart, right? So you have to minimize variation of vocabulary. If a term, if a term already used could be used again with approximation, it was preferred over a term. I'm going to try to make this a little bigger. I realize that it might be hard for some of you to see this. So it was preferred over a term that could be ex- that could express the same thought re- with precision, right? So if I have a choice, I'm the Benu Kadosh. I'm editing the Mishnah. I have uh, um, um, two uh, roads before me, or two options before me. Rather, one option is use a few or use um, a particular phraseology that is consistent with the previous phraseology, but it's not going to be so precise. Or I can use inconsistent phraseology, but it's going to be more precise. I will choose option A and not option B. This, by the way, just I just explained to you many of the interpretive difficulties that people have with Mishnayot. People are like breaking their heads with Mishnayot because Mishnayot are very difficult to understand. One of the great commentaries on the Mishnayot, the Kehati, Allah Vashalom, um, Harab Kehati, um, he does a fabulous job, but the question always becomes, so why didn't the Mishnah just say so, or, you know, or change the language? And here's your answer, right here. And my father brings a, um, a great example where the Mishnah in uh, Masechet Pesachim actually seems to say something that's imprecise. It's, that's, oh, I don't want to say incorrect, but it almost seems to be incorrect, but it just does so because of the idea of using consistent phraseology. I think this is great for us because it allows us now to understand. Right? Until we get to, you know, the next Mishnah. That's it. That's the answer. Right? The answer is you don't say That's, that's inconsistent phraseology and that would run afoul of what Rabbi Wakadosh wanted to do, which is to formulate the entire Surah Alpeh in a manner that would be easy, relatively easy, to remember. All right? So this is one of the great textual um, keys. One of the keys to understanding the text of the Mishnah is that. And that's exactly so. And we know what Shosha Yodot is. And these referring to the Semuchim. So now we tied up everything and we found now going to ask um, Shemuel the same question that we asked um, Rabbi Abu. What was the compelling force behind this? And the answer is again the same words, Mishum Rabbi Hanina. Mishum Rabbi Hanina, you already understand what that means. It means that the same policy consideration that led to the Bihanina to the idea that we would not have the Rishava Hakira is the policy consideration that Shemuel says that Ben Wakadosh had 
when he interpreted the Mishnah, it makes perfect sense. Shemuel and Rabbi Hanina were somehow um, uh, contemporaneous, right? Shemuel was also a Tanid of Rabbeinu Atadosh. Rabbi Hanina was a Tanid of Rabbeinu Atadosh, although uh, Rabbi Hanina, I believe, was more senior than Shemuel. And here we see how the interpretation of the Mishnah, according to Shemuel, is a more elegant interpretation, right? It conforms with Rabbi Hanina perfectly. And what doesn't it do? Let's see if, you, if anybody knows what it doesn't do. What does the interpretation of Rava not do? It doesn't change the law, um, right? He agrees with the Rabbi the Halakha. He agrees. He agrees that in the case of the Nehemamanot, we use Shaloshai uh, Gatot. It doesn't change the law. It was a pure textual issue. Right? And here we see that the Chachamim, they were very concerned with text and the way things, and with phraseology and with linguistics and with diktuk. They didn't just sloppily put things together, right? And even when you interpreted the text of Rabbeinu HaKadosh, you had to understand, and I, I want to say this, you know, oftentimes we study even the text of the Gemara, and we kind of like, we, we instinctively look at the great Steinsatz, and he was fantastic, I love him. Um, I consider it to be really we look at the great, great, great Rashi, and we don't look at the text. You know, and we kind of like, you know, we're like, we're okay with, you know, what's happening, and we don't realize all these, you know, imperfections in the text as we're reading the text, because we never engage with the text. That's a mistake, because the Chachamim and the Gemara are all about engaging with the text. So this whole idea that you kind of read this, you got really quickly, you know, and okay, I kind of understand, yeah, I, I think, right, I think that, right, these two rabbis disagree with each other, I think, or do they disagree with do they agree? Well, you know, it's just not serious. That's not what, I'm, I'm not telling you not to do that, you know, whatever. It's okay. It's just not studying Gemara. That's all I'm saying. It's, you know, to study Gemara, you have to engage with text, right? So here we had a whole discussion in the yeshiva, in Mechozah, from Bedita. This is when the yeshiva moved to the city of Mechozah, where Nava was. And the whole discussion revolves around one thing. We don't like the interpretation. We agree with the conclusion. The halachic conclusion is correct. We don't use expert witnesses in the case of loans. Fine, no problem. But don't give me an interpretation of the text that is somehow lacking in any way. I have a much better interpretation of the text. And let's go with that, with that interpretation. Uh, best of all, it comes from Shemuel, who was a you know, um, junior, junior Talmud of Rabbeinu HaKadosh. So that's that. Um, and um, I think if there's any question, I say it's 420. So I don't think it makes sense to go to the third part. Um, uh, the third part is very interesting, um, but I don't think it, it would make sense to go into that. So if anybody has any questions, um, there's about two minutes left, I would be happy to, uh, to entertain them. And I guess I can unshare this now. All right. There's a few questions on the chat. Um, okay. I don't know if you want me to read them out or, or can you see them? Okay, let me open the chat. All right, here we go. Couple from Rob. Okay. What is the incentive for lay to become judges if they can be held accountable? I mean, well, first of all, it, that probably, I think the answer is, um, you know, I don't mean to be, um, to sound cynical, because I don't, I don't believe in cynicism. But what is the incentive for incompetent politicians to take roles that they take? I mean, you know, you look at, you know, even our own country, our beloved, uh, maybe not to say which we love to no end, of course, you know, but, you know, if you look at the resumes of the people, you know, holding the various positions, there's no relationship between what, you know, the Salah Biut did, the head of the health in Israel, and, um, and, and his, you know, his experience. You know, so what is the incentive for that? And what is, you know, so the incentive is, I think it's always one thing. I think it's ego. 
um, personally, but you know, um, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe other people would have a different thing. I mean, it's great. I'm a judge. I'm a, you know, I'm a Dayan. People are standing up for me and, you know, I have a position of authority and it, you know, I can tell my wife and kids that I'm a Dayan. So it just feels really good. Um, okay. Let me go. You mean the they got paid? Um, well, I mean, yeah, possibly, you know, but they were, they were generally very wealthy. I mean, the reason people were appointed as Dayanim was because they're rich. The Reshkaluta would generally want to hire people from his personal club, you know what I'm saying? So they were rich already themselves. So it's more about prestige than about, um, than about money. Yeah, so presumably they were rich meant they were not um, bribable. That's why you want them rich to be. I mean, no, well, okay. I mean, fair enough, you know, but we still want them to be competent. You would agree with that? No. Yes. Right. Um, so, right. So, so I mean, yeah, I mean, hundred percent, we don't want them to be bribable. Um, let's just go to the next question. How can Rav, Han, uh, Rav Hanina and Rav override? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, perhaps you can ask me next week, only because it's, 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 it's an important question. If you just want to remember next week to maybe start the class with that question, because I do want to address it properly. And I, I'll take it on understanding that it is not, um, but rather two separate groups. What does it say? Oh, nice question. Very good question. I will try to address that next week. Also, if you can ask that, I think that's Ohad. Um, you can ask that, so two people. And what about the question of closing doors? What do, what do you mean by that? Um, I'm not sure I understand that question. Ignacio, would you like to elaborate on that question? Okay, so as things stand, I answered one question. I, I said the other two questions I will, um, I will leave for next week. And uh, let me wish you all a good evening, wherever you may be. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. We'll see you on Wednesday.